Hello, and welcome to Breadth of Experience, a podcast in the TDM Talks series, where seasoned portfolio managers and specialists share their insights directly with you. Gain valuable insights from experts themselves as they discuss strategies, market trends, and the breadth of experiences in the financial world. On the podcast today, Jason McIntyre, Head of Retail Distribution at TD Asset Management, connects with Stephen Blyberg, Managing Director and Portfolio Manager at TD Epic on investing in the U.S. market and TD Epic's capital reinvestment strategy. Hi, Stephen. Thanks so much for joining us today. Appreciate you taking the time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Look, let's get right into it. I'd love to start, though. Um, You know, you're with TD Epic, formerly Epic. Would love a little bit of background as to Epic sort of the history, if you can, and then a little bit about yourself. Sure. So Epic was started almost 20 years ago now in uh, early 2004, a group of, we we like to say, uh, experienced investors who had worked together before, which is a polite way of saying older uh, (laughs) investors experienced. And and it was really about um, wanting to start a firm to express a certain philosophy of investing, having to do with basically the importance of free cash flow. And that's what Epic has always been all about, you know, the belief that it's it's the ability of a business to generate free cash flow, not accounting earnings that makes the business worth something to begin with. And equally importantly, it's how management allocates the free cash flow between the different uses uh, of cash, either reinvesting in the business or giving it back to shareholders. It's, it's you know, if, if management makes those decisions sensibly, they grow the value of the business. If not, they could destroy the value of the business. So Epic, 20 years ago. So when did TD come into the picture? So that was 10 years ago. In early, in early 2013 is when TD acquired Epic. So we've been part of TD for 10 years. Uh, my own background, I, I've been in the business, uh, it'll be 40 years next year, shockingly. Um, and actually, I was first hired out of business school years ago by Bill Priest, who was the, one of the co-founders of Epic. So I've known him for a very long time, and we had worked together in the past, obviously, the, in the 80s and 90s before I, I joined Epic back in 2014, so nine years ago. So that's, that's my background. And I've done um, a variety of things over the years. I started out looking at U.S. equities. Then I actually spent most of the 1990s managing Japanese equities. And uh, then I switched over to doing asset allocation, uh, sort of the turn of this century, and actually was managing some open architecture, multi-manager fund of funds products, which put me in a unique position, I think, in our business, because most people on our, in, in our business have only sat on one side of the table, which is presenting yourself to uh, you know, consultants or prospective clients. And I've sort of, I've sat on the other side and listened to managers make their pitches you know, it was, it was sort of sad to realize that most managers come in and they, they start off talking about how unique they are. They're completely different. And then you, you hear the story and you realize, you know, it sounds kind of a lot like all the other managers that have come in here and said the same thing. So let, let me play on that for a second, because I've heard you say that the capital reinvestment mandates are unique. So what makes them unique then? Yeah. So, yeah, we, we're very aware of that, not falling into that trap of, of uh, sounding like everybody else. So we've, we've kind of identified a few things that we think make what we do unique. Number one is that we have this really intense focus, not on growth, but on profitability. And then, you know, we can come back to that, that why, why profitability matters more than growth. That's number one. Number two is that um, our portfolio just actually looks different uh, than most of our competitors. It's, it's more diversified. It's not as concentrated in a few names. It's got more of an all cap uh, profile. Uh, and, and when you look at style characteristics or just risk exposures of our of our portfolio versus our peers, it's a very distinctive profile. And then third, there's a real discipline and to what we do, both in the way we sort of first narrow the universe down to get to a number of stocks where we can then you know do do a deep dive and exercise some real fundamental judgment. Uh, and also that once we've done that and decided which names we want to own, how we combine them into a portfolio, we really use uh, a very disciplined process there too. 
using you know portfolio optimization to make sure we are taking risk as efficiently as we can. So when you talk about uh, being more all cap than some of the more large cap, mid cap, small cap mandates, is that a result of the process or is that something you set out to do to have sort of equal weights amongst the portfolio? Well, it's kind of the, it's, it's the result of being kind of agnostic about, about what kind of stock we would own. We, we have a, a process, as I said, to sort of narrow the universe down. You know, there's thousands and thousands of publicly traded stocks. You can't, you know, nobody has enough fundamental research resources to do a deep dive on every single one of them. You have to have some way to sensibly narrow the universe to a pool that kind of meets some initial criteria that you think make them attractive, but then you got to do the, the fundamental research to, to make a final conclusion. We're, as I say, kind of agnostic about where that process leads us, and it turns up names kind of all over the capitalization spectrum, and, and we're just happy to go wherever it takes us if we find a company that we think is, is you know, really attractive to us. And, and we can talk about what makes a, a company attractive to us uh, you know, in more detail as well. Yeah, that's great. So maybe just pivoting for a second to a macro view uh, I know you know you run global mandates and U.S. specific mandates. Um, the mandate that we're going to talk a little bit more about the the one that you're taking over management of uh, in November is a U.S. mandate. So when I look at the S and P 500, I think we're up nine plus percent year to date and and uh, over the last year. Give us uh, just from a macro view your perspective of the U.S. markets, where the opportunities are, and how you guys think about that. So I, I know this, this might disappoint you, but we. We don't really take, you know, what I would call a, a true macro view. We don't try to forecast the economy. We don't try to forecast what sectors are going to do well relative to others. We're really, this is a very bottom-up, fundamentally driven process, looking for companies that have high returns on their invested capital relative to their cost of capital and have some sort of sustainable competitive advantage that's going to enable them to keep that going. That does tend to, over time, we, we've tended to have certain kind of structural biases built in towards certain kinds of companies. Things like healthcare technology, consumer goods companies, uh, bias kind of away from other kinds of companies like you know utilities or materials or energy. Not to say we've never owned any of them, but we were usually pretty underweight in those sectors. And it's really pretty bottom up. I mean, I like to you know the example I like to give is one of our big holdings has lately has been Eli Lilly, the, you know the drug company. And and then I say, okay, well people are constantly asking things like, you know, what do you think the Fed's going to do and, and, and how does that affect your investment process? Well, think about a company like Eli Lee, where the vast majority of their business right now is diabetes drugs. You know, is, is a, another hike of 25 basis points by the Fed or not, if they don't, how is that going to affect the, you know, demand for diabetes treatments? It's not really going to have a big impact. And you could go through the portfolio and find so many companies where that's true, uh, that, you know, these, these things aren't really that sensitive to, to macro variables. And, and in particular, this thing that we focus on profitability and not growth, if you, if you isolate, you know, quote, profitability as a factor, you know, a style factor, what you find is over time, it's got a very, it's a very nice tailwind to have at your back. There, there really aren't, you know, long periods of time where profitability just doesn't do well and highly profitable companies underperform. It, the market just doesn't work that way. So I think, you know, you, you talk about some of the names of the portfolio. I know this is the point when, uh, People listening in usually turn up the volume a little bit because they like to hear those stories. Maybe a couple of names in the portfolio, uh, maybe a surprise that people would be surprised come out of the work that you do and the analysis and uh, maybe give us a couple of examples. That'd be great. Sure. Well, I mean, you know, a few months ago, I think uh, when we were looking at, uh, you know, the June 30th data, the largest holding in our U.S. portfolio at that time was a company that I'm, I imagine most people have never heard of called Copart, which is a basically salvage auto auctioneer. And it's, you know, it's the, I think it's the largest one in the U.S. 
I sadly had to send off the title of one of our cars to Copart not too long ago after it was in an accident. And uh, but anyway, so that's that was our largest holding. And again, most people have probably never heard of it. It's just you know it's because it's kind of a uh, duopoly market basically. There's it's a, gives them pricing power. There's kind of steady demand. It's you know again not talk about not being economically sensitive. You know people get into auto accidents all the time, and you know they earn very good returns on their capital. It, they seem to have a, a, a you know sustainable competitive advantage. So that's that's one example of a, a company we've out. I mean another coincidentally, and you could argue it's related, but uh, O'Reilly Auto you know parts. It was another one of our top ten holdings. You know, again, these are just not names you. I think most people are used to seeing. They're used to seeing big weights and names like Microsoft and Apple and Alphabet. And we own some of those names. We don't own all of the Magnificent Seven. We own some of them. But when we do own them, uh, we actually tend to be not at a market weight. And it doesn't mean we don't like them. It's just that the way we think about constructing portfolios, you know, 5% is an awful lot to put in one name. There's plenty of other uh, fish in the sea, so to speak. There's lots of other stocks out there that are equally attractive. And if they have low correlation with those big names, uh, you can get a, a, you know, a better result in the long term in terms of risk and return. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's interesting doing it that way because you think about you know, the, the big seven stocks that have driven performance up and down in the, in the S&P uh, and the fact that when we look at relative performance and we have lots of information on our website you know, on, on historical performance, the way that you guys have managed to outperform on a risk-adjusted basis has really been something uh, that I know, obviously, when we looked at the manager switch and brought you guys on to take over the portfolio, something that really resonated with us. Yeah, well, I, it is. It's kind of a testament to the way we go about building the portfolio. That, as I say, there there's always plenty of opportunities out there. I sometimes call it the quote tyranny of the index. Being people think, you know, oh, if it's five percent of the index, I have to have more than five percent in it if I like it. Well, you know, again, not necessarily. There there are other names that might be equally or more attractive, and there's no reason why you can't put some of that weight there. So if you know, if we're two percent or something in a, in a stock like you know, Microsoft, and it's more than that in the index. And people would say, well, but if Microsoft does well, that's going to hurt you. You're underweight. Well, that's half the story. The other half of the story is, what did we do with the rest of that portfolio weighting that didn't go into Microsoft? Where did we put it? And if that stock did equally well or better than Microsoft, then it was a win for us. A lot of times advisors and, and investors will look, is this mandate a growth strategy? Is it a value strategy? How would you categorize the, the capital reinvestment strategy? Yeah, well, it definitely tilts towards growth. I mean, we would describe it as quality growth. Uh, you know, most people are accustomed to that sort of value versus growth spectrum. When you look at our portfolio historically on that spectrum, we, we always come down kind of in the middle between growth and core. We've never been on the value side of that, that spectrum. We've always been somewhere between core and growth because uh, you know, what we're really more focused on, again, is quality, meaning profitability, high returns on capital. Part of our process, we, we do want companies that can grow at least as fast as the economy. So we, we do have a growth hurdle in our initial screening, but it's basically, as long as you're growing your top line at the same rate as nominal GDP or better, that's good enough for us. But so think of it as like there's a sort of a bell curve with the middle of the curve, the highest point is sort of nominal GDP growth. So we're just looking at the right side of the bell curve. Uh, but it does, you know, stocks don't have to be way out there on the far side of that uh, curve to get into our portfolio. If you're growing at 6% a year, that's good enough. But so we do have this little bit of a, a tilt towards growth pretty consistently. Switching gears a little bit, I do want to ask you about a recent uh, win that we had in our institutional business. One of the areas, and we had Mark Sesnick on, who's my counterpart on the institutional side on a prior podcast, talked about the opportunities globally and how we're looking at TV asset management to expand globally. Uh, we just had an amazing win 
that I know you were a big part of in Japan with the world's, I think I can say this is the largest pension fund in the world for the capital reinvestment strategy. So just a terrific you know, win for us competing globally against every other asset manager. Maybe just a quick note on that and, and what was the deciding factor, do you think, in, in the opportunity for us to manage money for the pension fund? You know, TD Epic started out really focused on kind of that institutional client base. And so we're very used to operating in that world. And there's often very high hurdles you have to get over to get hired in, in those kinds of clients. You have to go through, you know, months and months of, of multiple rounds of meetings and dealing with consultants who have to approve of what you do. So it's, um, you know, they, they're generally what they liked about us uh, is, is the disciplined process that we follow. We, we have, you know, I would say our strategy is based on what I would call sound financial principles, meaning the idea that the way you grow the value of a business is you invest capital into the business in such a way as to earn a return that's higher than the cost of the capital. It's just like an individual. If you could go out and borrow money at five and earn 10 on it, you're, you're growing your wealth. If you're borrowing at 10 and earning five, you're slowly destroying your wealth. It's really the same for a business. And so that's the basis of everything we do, focusing on companies that can earn high returns on capital relative to the cost of capital and have the ability to sustain it. And we're extremely rigorous and disciplined about what we do. And that's, I think, what appealed to the, the client in question was GPIF. It's the government pension fund for Japan. It's over a trillion dollars in assets total. That's what appealed to them about our process. That, that's fantastic. And, and it kind of leads me into uh, maybe the final topic of conversation, which would be, I'm really excited about uh, the announcement that we made moving responsibilities for management from our TD US Blue Chip Equity Fund over to TD Epic, um, yourself and David Sino. In the name change or in the within the fund, we're going to change the name as well to the TD Capital Reinvestment Fund. That's going to occur on or about November 4th-ish. Really excited about this. And I think for the first time, being able to offer Canadian investors access to this management is a wonderful opportunity for us and our clients and our investors. Maybe just a quick word about that. And, and if you can take us through at a high level, some of the tactical things that are going to happen once you assume responsibility for the portfolio, turning over securities and that sort of thing, it would be great. Sure. Well, we are equally excited, uh, if not more so on our end. Uh, we're, we are very excited at this opportunity. Uh, and and it's, I want to just note, it's, it's more than David and I. I mean, we are a team of six, actually, four additional dedicated analysts uh, besides David and myself on the team. And we really do operate as a team. This is, this is not a star you know, manager kind of uh, thing. This is, this is a team effort. Yes. When we, so when we take over, the portfolio obviously is, looks quite different from the way we manage a portfolio. I mentioned that we, we tend to be pretty diversified. We've usually got about between 80 and 90 stocks. Usually no one stock is more than 2% of the portfolio. The top 10 are usually only about 15 or 16%. You know, the existing portfolio looks quite different. It's, it's quite concentrated. So th there's going to need to be transition. We're not intending to just come in and, and do it all overnight. We, we understand there are going to be tax consequences because uh, a lot of these stocks have been there for quite a while and they have some pretty hefty unrealized capital gains. So our, our goal is to um, start the process you know, sometime in November, but try to keep the, uh, the realized gains pretty limited uh, through the end of the calendar year because this kind of came late in the year for people. They didn't have a lot of time to prepare for, for this. Uh, once we get past January, I think you'll see us sort of finish that process and, and you know, there would, there would likely be some additional realized gains next year for calendar 24. Yeah. And, and look, I, I think it's, you know, it's obviously a question that people will have. I have a lot of comfort in, in working closely with you and the teams that there's two things we want to accomplish. One is to get the portfolio transition. And it looks like we've got a really good plan and also doing it in the most tax efficient manner, which 
I'm really confident we're going to be able to do. And I think that the people that we've been out speaking to are really confident that we'll be able to accomplish that as well. So uh, that's that's wonderful. Listen, Stephen, I really appreciate your time today. Thanks so much for joining us and hope to have you back soon. Thanks very much. The information contained herein is for information purposes only. The information has been drawn from sources believed to be reliable. The information does not provide financial, legal, tax, or investment advice. Particular investment, tax, or trading strategies should be evaluated relative to each individual's objectives and risk tolerance. This material is not an offer to any person in any jurisdiction where unlawful or unauthorized. These materials have not been reviewed by and are not registered with any securities or other regulatory authority in jurisdictions where we operate. Any general discussion or opinions contained within these materials regarding securities or market conditions represents our view or the view of the source cited. Unless otherwise indicated, such view is of the date noted and is subject to change. Information about the portfolio holdings, asset allocation, or diversification is historical and is subject to change. This document may contain forward-looking statements or FLS. FLS reflect current expectations and projections about future events and or outcomes based on data currently available. This document may contain forward-looking statements or FLS. FLS reflect current expectations and projections about future events and or outcomes based on data currently available. Such expectations and projections may be incorrect in the future as events which were not anticipated or considered in their formulation may occur and lead to results that differ materially from those expressed or implied. FLS are not guarantees of future performance and reliance on FLS should be avoided. TD Global Investment Solutions represents TD Asset Management Inc. and Epic Investment Partners Inc. Both entities are affiliates and wholly owned subsidiaries of the Toronto Dominion Bank. 